Welcome to episode number 124 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we have back on the podcast, Jason Reason, lead combustible dust consultant at Airdusco, and he's based at Indianapolis, Indiana. Jason, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Yeah, it's good to be back. 124 of these. Wow, man. <laughs> good job. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. You were here on episode 12 um, talking about qualified persons and combustible dust hazard training. <laughs> and now you're here in episode 124. So 112 episodes later, uh, that's two years and a bit, um, talking about how unqualified individuals are affecting DHAs. So we have some lessons learned, I guess, over the last two years on qualified person on DHAs. Those of you that listen to the podcast for a long time, you'll, you'll know Jason's voice. We had him, I mentioned on episode 12, and I'm on episode 33 talking about explosion, fire safety, and 3D printing. He's been a presenter at the global dust safety conferences that we've held on add to manufacturing, on pitfalls and challenges and traps of dust hazard analysis. We've had him inside the Dust Safety Academy giving Ask Me Anything and trainings on remote dust hazard analysis. I think we covered those back in episode 91 and 92 of the podcast. So I guess if we were collecting points, you'd be like a frequent flyer on the Dust Safety Science podcast, Jason. Making me feel old, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm not getting up there too, too, too far. So <laughs> um, yeah. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk through qualified persons, um, dust hazard analysis, and some of the things Jason's seen in what the outcome might be if you don't hire a qualified person for doing a DHA and what kind of challenges that can lead to. So we're going to talk, we'll do a recap on what Jason's role is, because um, I think it's important for this topic. We'll talk about these challenges with qualified persons, examples, and I call them examples of how UQP, UQPs, I guess, and qualified people have made things worse, and, and solutions to address this problem as a community, uh, what Jason thinks that we need to be doing to, to kind of improve this over time. So Jason, for the, the new audience to the podcast, if this is the first time they're listening and, and having an interview with you, one, probably go back and listen to the other interviews as well. But can you just let us know what your role is in the industry handling combustible dust and where you sort of fit in? Yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of a unique perspective in combustible dust. You know, I've been a consultant now for about going on a little over eight years, both with uh, with Seam Group or Slash Llewellyn Technology in the past, where I actually created that whole combustible dust division and then now in my new role with uh, with Aerodusco as the lead combustible dust consultant. But um, so I, I've been doing DHAs ever since the term was created, you know, by NFPA 652, what was it, five or six years ago. But even before that, doing doing DHAs for the DHAs. And then where, where some of the other unique perspectives I have come from is that I was actually an OSHA compliance officer before becoming a consultant for 13 years. So the last six years of, of my time there at OSHA, I did a lot of combustible dust to the point where I've cited over 100 general duty plot citations, done pretty much everything you can think of related to dust, and even trained federal and state OSHA compliance officers and consultants uh, on combustible dust. So, and then, you know, I also sit on a lot of the NFPA committees to help write these standards, um, including I'm the chair of the Wood Dust Committee, NFPA 664. So, yeah, you, you stay busy in combustible dust, then it sounds like. I stay busy and have no life. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, di I didn't say that, but I think today is a vacation day for you, you told me. It is. <laughs> so, you're here yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, we appreciate the work. Second, one of the reasons I really enjoy, one of the many reasons I really enjoy talking with you is that you have really this diverse background. So, you're, you're a consultant now. You spend a lot of time in combustible dust, a lot of time in different industries from wood to metal to plastics. But then you have this background of OSHA compliance, compliance officer, training compliance officers, training consultants. It really gives us unique perspective of multiple sides of the, the challenge that really faces us with combustible dust. And it's hard to find. I don't know if there would be that many folks that would have that background in, in North America. <laughs> um, so it's, it's when we find that, it's good to dig into that and try to get those, those lessons that you've learned out of this. So we won't go through NFPA 652 and... I may mention the qual the definition of qualified person sometime throughout the discussion, but we're not going to go through the background information. We've covered that on the podcast before. We've covered that in Dust Safety Academy. I really kind of want to just jump right into what sort of challenges are you seeing with qualifications? Um, I'm not sure if that is qualified person or not, but or I guess that's a good question. 
but I'll, I'll ask in two pieces. What are the challenges you've seen with qualifications related to combustible dust? And then how does that relate to qualified persons as well? Well, I, I think um, some of the things I'm seeing out there is, and it, it's progressively getting worse, I guess is the way, I guess the best way to put it, is that more and more people are doing DHAs that I've seen. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, why I say it's getting worse is because the people who I see doing them aren't qualified to do them. And like you said, Chris, not getting back into the definition and what it really says, but this is where, unfortunately, and, and this is just me saying this in my, my opinion and my opinion alone, this is where NFDA has failed. And I have to take responsibility for that because I sit on the 652 committee, but this is where we failed and that that definition for qualified person is confusing. It's too vague. It needs to be redone. And it's, it's almost, it's basically a performance-based type of thing when it should be more prescriptive, in my opinion. But um, what I'm seeing is especially a lot of safety and health consultants right now and some engineering firms are doing DHAs. But then when you go to research some of these people, even on their websites, they don't even mention combustible dust on their websites, but yet they're doing DHAs. And their experience is little to none. And and while this may seem not like like not such a big deal, it it is it becomes a bigger deal for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into here. But primarily because if you get an unqualified person, and this is what I'm seeing right now out in the industry, but if you have a qualified person do a DHA, the outcome of that, which is the report, is going to be you know negatively affected in that it's not going to be as specific as it needs to be. And you're going to get probably one of two things happen. Hazards are going to be missed or you're going to get a control in terms of a recommendation is going to tell you to implement a control when you may not need it, which is going to lead to thousands of dollars and possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars in unnecessary costs, all because that comes back to the qualified person doing the DHA. Yeah, and I think it probably is is worth mentioning at this point for a DHA that they're they're really meant to cover both the gaps. They're more than just an assessment, more than just a checklist, more than just, you know, these are the prescriptive failings, the failings to the prescriptive standards, but they should also include the recommendations. And if you get a, you know, a, a, I don't want to say the word qualified, so a, a good provider also, you know, what order the recommendations should be completed in and some support on how to actually do that. I don't know if you have anything you want to say on those being included as sort of a baseline for the conversation for uh, for DHAs in general. Yeah, I mean, and and honestly, I mean, I don't know how you do a DHA without some type of risk assessment. Now, I'm, I'm not saying doing a quantitative risk assessment where you calculate probabilities. That probably goes well far and beyond what anybody would offer because, you know, that would take a lot of time to do those type of calculations. But even just doing a qualitative risk assessment, which is something like we do, where, you know, you just rank something, for example, high, you know, it, it gives the, the person an idea of, okay, this is bad. And okay, we now know which ones we need to focus on, and which ones can wait. And, and that may not seem like a big deal. But when you come out of a DHA, if it's done right, you're going to have, you know, 50 ish recommendations, most likely, or something around that number. And if you don't have some way to differentiate what you should do now, and what you should do later, you're going to be overwhelmed. And that typically what happens at that point is people just throw it in their filing cabinet and say, yeah, we're done with it now. And it ends up in the black hole. Like I like to mention it, nobody knows where it is. And then until God forbid an incident happens or an AHJ authority having jurisdiction shows up and asks for it. And that's why did you do anything with it? Yeah. And I, I brought that point up because we've actually got that question in the, in our health desk in the dust safety Academy. I had a DHA done, you know, the consultant said, I have five years till I need to do another one. You know, how, how many of these recommendations do I have to do a year? You know, how do I, do? And, and the answer I had to stir them back to was, well, really the consultant that did that, the external person you brought in needs to provide those answers to those questions. And I think they went back to the consultant and were able to get some of the information, but I know it's out there where people are wondering, you know, if I have 50 recommendations in five years, does that mean I got to do 10 a year? Does that mean I, do the 10 fastest and cheapest first or do I do the, so it, it's really a piece of the puzzle that needs to be included there as well. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a consultant out there right now and I won't mention the name, but I know who it is. It's a rather big firm that is um, when they issue their DHA report. Now they don't risk rank any of the recommendations, which again, I have a problem with, but 
what they do now is they give you a little meter on the front of the report or near the front of the report that says, essentially, how likely are you to blow up? And it's a little meter that says low, medium, or high. And they basically say, well, based on all the recommendations, you have a low probability of blowing up. I, again, I, I question what value that really brings. I guess you could, it brings some, some value in that. I guess, in their opinion, you have a low probability of blowing up. But again, it doesn't help you when trying to figure out, okay, which recommendation should I implement now? Because very few companies, and Chris, I know you're aware of this, but very few companies can implement every recommendation all at once. And it's not really intent either. No, no. You should focus on the stuff that is the highest risk rather than focus on little things like putting a sign up, for example. Okay, I mean, that's an OSHA requirement, but I mean, should you really focus your, spend your time on that? I mean, you could do that whenever you wanted. I mean, focus on, you know, deflagration venting issues or things like that. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of a lot of different ways to look at it. And I would say and it's going to tie into probably some of the recommendations towards the end of this podcast interview. But, you know, in doing your homework first, asking the questions on what's actually going to be included in your dust hazard analysis. I mean, it doesn't hurt to ask, are you going to give recommendations? What are those going to look like? Are they going to be ordered? Are you going to provide one month call support on questions we have about getting these like just to ask those questions up front so that you know once you go into the DHA and that actually might help filter out some of the the providers that aren't willing to to do that extra information as well. I was going to get into examples but is there anything else that you want to chat about there? No I, I think probably my best advice and I know I've said this in other podcasts so I won't go into it but my best advice is if, if you're going to use an external entity like a consulting firm or an engineering firm or whatever else is out there the biggest mistake you can make is assuming that they're qualified. That is the biggest mistake you can make. And, and I'm seeing that mistake more frequently because I, I will hear some, some clients say, well, yeah, everybody we sent everything out to, we assume they're qualified. I go, that's a bad assumption. I mean, if you take that kind of you know position before you even go out to bid or whatever else you're going to do for the DHA, you're already leaning towards that thing failing at that point because at that point, you're going to revert back to price because that's what most people are doing at this point. And I, and I get it, but still, that's not what the number one thing should be on a DHA. I know that it's counterintuitive to business. I, and I'm saying that as someone who has an MBA, um, but I, I get it. But you, it's more price is definitely something you should look at, but it's not the singular singular thing you should look at. Yeah, I'd like to come back to some of those because I have some thoughts from our, our research and our work too on some of the elements you might want to be looking for. But let's let's save those so the audience has to stick around to the end of the, the interview for that. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of examples then, so the title for this episode is How Unqualified Individuals Are Affecting DHAs. The genesis was really from you reaching out to me and sharing mm-hmm. some of the things that you've come in after the fact and, and had to help or be involved with or respond to. So for, for what we can talk about, what are some examples then of, of how unqualified people have made things worse or, or how they're impacting DHAs in general? So I, I can give a couple of, of real life examples here that have happened in the last year or so. Well, actually, I'll give three. But um, the first one would be um, there was a rather large company that was doing some, um, let's just call it metal surface removal. Let's just call it that. Um, so they're generating metal dust inside of a enclosed booth. They actually closed the door while the employees in there inside this booth. And, you know, so they're blasting off and grinding off the metal and everything. And it, this booth is connected. Again, it's enclosed on all four sides as a top and it's going to a dust collector outside that has explosion protection and explosion isolation and pretty much everything else it needs to have. Vents are correct in terms of sizing and discharge or location. So everything looked good on the report that I was looking at, but I got a question from the client asking me, what do you think? They had me review this and I'm looking through it. And again, the DHA, they did a decent job on everything they needed to with dust collection and everything like that, but they made a recommendation to put a deflagration vent on the booth. Now I'm not disagreeing with that because I actually do think it's above the minimum explosible concentration where that problem comes into effect is they apparently forgot, or I, I don't know what, because again, I have a lot of respect for this company who does this, but they apparently forgot that there's an employee inside this booth. So putting a deflagration bin on the booth doesn't do anything for them. You're going to kill them. 
if there's actually a deflagration in there, they're in there with it. They're dead at that point. And they didn't mention anything about, you know, the employee in terms of how to protect them or maybe how to isolate them somehow or to some type of ignition source control or something to get that employee away from that hazard. But simply putting a vent on that booth does nothing for the employee protection. When I brought that to the attention of the client, I, I don't think they saw it either until I brought it up that, okay, well, yeah, no one ever thought of that poor employee in there. So that, that's kind of one, one of the first examples there that I, I think some people get focused too much on, you know, okay, we have something about the MEC, let's fix it. But you have, you don't seem to see the employee or the kind of employee exposure there that simply protecting that equipment not going to do anything for this employee. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to label this one. And I, I think, you know, looking at all the hazards and risks, so not just, I mean, that's probably a challenge that you see with checklists, right? So you're going around checking the boxes, but if you're not having a critical eye on the, the equipment that you're looking at, you might miss something like there's a person inside there, right? That might be a good example of this. So not, you know, not taking a detailed look at the hazards and the risks and just applying solutions i can't figure the best way to come up with a title for this example i don't know if you have one that's a little bit better well it it kind of feeds into the second example which is more for 3d printing but i'm seeing some more people get into 3d printing and um, some of the stuff that i'm seeing there is very scary because i like for example i see all kinds of dha reports for 3d printing that don't cover the printers because the people are scared to go after the printers because they assume they're done correctly and i can i can honestly tell you they are not Several of the printers out there are not designed correctly. And, um, you know, you ignore serious hazards like with this condensate that can spontaneously combust and lead to flash fires that have caused several second and third degree burns to employees. I I frequently see on at least 90% of the reports out there that that condensate's not even covered in in the DHA. And that's partly going to what you're talking about, Chris, is because they're going down a checklist or an audit type of thing. And... I always tell people at DHA, if you want to compare it to something, you can call it an audit on steroids, but it's not an audit. It, it's a lot more than that. And if you strictly stick to compliance-based stuff, to check a box off that we complied with NFPA section, whatever, I guarantee you you're going to miss hazards because you've got to look beyond the compliance. Compliance is an aspect of a DHA, but it's really about finding those hazards. And I'm going to be honest, there's stuff that NFPA has that doesn't have that if you just tried to look at that, you're going to miss something because the NFPA standards are not all encompassing and the OSHA standards sure as heck are not all encompassing. They're well behind where they should be. Yeah, I don't know if you see this in 3D printing, but we've seen it. Actually, I think we have seen it in 3D printing in some of the instances we've covered, but other industries as well. Things like keeping the oxygen concentration lower than the exposable limit. And you might then just not analyze that equipment for ignition sources, even though it's open to air 10% of the time or something when, when you critically need to understand your ignition sources. So it's sort of like putting up those blinders on, okay, that, that piece of equipment um, was dealt with somewhere else. So we're not going to look at it or it's protected using a nerding and, you know, not thinking of the times when a nerding is going to go down. That's actually when we see the people get hurt because you're not looking at your ignition sources, you're not protecting and trolling those. And when you remove that nerding or it goes down because there's a power failure or it goes down because there's equipment failure, or the thing was never inerted properly in the first place and wasn't tested and the ignition source introduced there's employees there because they thought it was inerted. Yeah, I, I see that pretty frequently in 3D printing where people ignore filter changes, again, because those are done in non-inert atmospheres. Uh, they, they ignore powder transfer, part extraction. All of that is done in a non-inert atmosphere. And like you said, they, they revert back to, well, it's inerted. It's not continuously inerted, just like you said, Chris. And I would take it a step further where I'm starting to see that creep into the non-AM side and that people say, well, the dust collector has a vent on it. We don't have to do anything. No, you still have to do stuff. You have to make sure it's not pointed at things. You have to maintain the vent um, or you have to maintain your backdraft damper. But I think there's, there's getting to be an opinion out there. And unfortunately I see it kind of going over to some of the unqualified consultants that say, well, they put a vent on it. We're fine. When they never look at, okay, is it sized correctly? Is it pointed correctly? You know, is it, does it have everything it needs? They just automatically make the assumption, Hey, it's good. It has something on it. 
And there is, I have heard, you know, something's better than nothing. Well, it's only better than nothing if it doesn't make things worse, <laughs> you know, or it's, if, if you did something and, and it, it wasn't enough to save a life when a deflagration occurs and it, it wasn't better than nothing. <laughs> it was basically nothing. So I think you do see that kind of out there as well. You mentioned a third example. I don't know if you want to bring that one up now. Yeah, this one goes to another problem I'm kind of seeing out there that I mean, I obviously I know we're going to talk a little bit more about this near the end of the podcast, but uh, it leads into that as well. But it's more of, I can obviously tell when somebody's probably not qualified when I look at, because I look at a lot of these DHA reports, people come to me to have me just give them a quote unquote unbiased opinion on them. And, and I'll give you my unbiased opinion as Crystal, anybody else who knows me will tell you. And I've seen some really good reports out there. I really have. But unfortunately, I've seen some really bad ones. And there's a couple here recently that I saw that it's pretty obvious they're just regurgitating the standard um, in terms of NFPA whatever or OSHA whatever. And half the time they don't mention OSHA, but some of the time it's just NFPA. But in these cases, um, I saw one here where they recommended to put deflagration venting on this dust collector. It was indoors. And I'm looking at it, and first off, they just left it at that. They said, put deflagration venting. Well, that right there tells me you're not qualified because you just told them to have a big fireball in their facility. You never told them to duct it outside through a vent discharge duct or through a flame arrester or something to make sure that you don't have that fireball coming through. But the real problem with this is that they obviously didn't kind of research performance-based design option because there were only two sources of ignition for this dust collector, essentially static and tramp metal. And if you can control those two sources of ignition, you don't need to put explosion protection on the dust collector because you have nothing to ignite it. So we were able to look at that and provide a performance-based design option, which don't get me wrong, it's still going to be a pain to implement some of this stuff in terms of a, a magnetic separator and bonding and grounding. And we put some other controls on there to cover every potential sources of ignition. But by doing that, they never needed to put exposure protection on this dust collector. And again, you could have done that, but again, without that's where I kind of see the there's a line there and I can tell that if you don't examine performance-based design option, you know, you're not getting the full full benefit of that DHA. Yeah, and I guess I would ask on the other side, I mean it goes both ways, right? So you you may overprotect if you don't look at a performance-based design, but you can also, you know, suggest a performance-based design if you don't have the expertise to to analyze the situation in terms of the risk is too low, that that is unacceptably high risk. So is that part of the qualified person too? Like if they're going to use performance-based design, then they would need to be confident and qualified to actually come up with a design that's safe? Yeah, I mean, you, obviously, if you're going to design it, you would need to be an engineer. And I, I always say engineers are much smarter than me. I'm a safety and health person. Um, but my, my, what we do when we recommend it is we try to lay out, okay, here's all the elements you're going to have to do for the performance-based design, you know, like bond and ground or put a magnetic separator in or do this or do that. And we're very specific on what we say. And there may be some design elements in there, too, that we need, need to pull an engineer into this. And sometimes the... the the facility engineer can do parts of it if they're a PE, especially, and they're they're qualified to do it and licensed. But um, the important thing to remember about performance-based design is that it has to be approved by the AHJ. And so most likely that's going to be the fire marshal or the building code official or possibly insurance. So you want to make sure you have all your ducks in a row before you go to them, you know, to do this performance-based design. But it's it's all about taking the time to do the to figure out, obviously we're all about safety and health here. So you want to figure out number one, what's the safest solution for this, but where people fall away and where some of the unqualified people don't, I don't think they understand is that what's the most cost effective solution to fix this on top of the safety thing. So they, they play hand in hand because like you said, Chris, you can, I've seen a system here recently that had 20, I'm not joking, 20 explosion suppression cylinders on it. And again, I, I, I don't fault the engineer. I can tell you it's protected. I, I can fault the fact that I don't think you need 20 of them. <laughs> um, so I have to start questioning that point where, like you said, Chris, I think you kind of overprotected it, which may not seem like a big deal until, unless you know, 
like I know Chris knows this, it gets very expensive to maintain those cylinders. So if you put five extra on there, that's about $5,000 extra a quarter you're paying when you may not need to pay it. Well, and, and I would say, I mean, if the company wanted to do that, that's great. If they, they made an informed decision and that's part of their, say, their company values or they have their own internal regulations or standards that they spec their design equipment to and that are above and beyond NFPA or above and beyond ATEX or, or whatever it is. Like that's an excellent example um, and one that I'd, I'd like to highlight more and more. The challenge is the, to me is the, the five companies that are going to say no to anything because the solution was over conservative. So if you're, you know, over protection leads to under adoption is the, the quote that I might have said back in one of the other podcast interviews we did. That's the concern to me, the five companies that do nothing. So I don't care if you want to overprotect your, your equipment because that's meets your company values or your internal definitions of, of level of safety. And that's, that's great. But yeah, my big challenge is the five companies or the 10 companies that aren't going to do anything because those solutions aren't going to, aren't going to be effective. Um, or at least cost effective, but it's a fine line, right? So who gets to say how much, how expensive is too expensive? And I have a whole bunch of other thoughts on that, but that's probably a whole different podcast episode. <laughs> I would say that most people, if you're in the place where you're talking about these solutions and you haven't done anything to date really to, to manage them, you're probably losing so much money in fires and burnt out dust collectors and equipment changes and maintenance practices and fugitive dust cleanup efforts that if you just took, took that and added it to a different column in your in your accounting that wasn't operational expenses but was like safety uh you'd, you'd probably find that you have tens of thousands if not more of dollars a, a year to be able to apply to the safety solutions to improve some of those things that's the the 60 second version of a probably three different podcast episodes i could do on that topic i know jason you could do that as well <laughs> So we have three examples here. We have a large company metal surface removal where we applied venting to a booth, um, not really appreciating that somebody's inside that booth and that they should probably be addressed in DHA as well. We have a 3D printer where, or a facility with a 3D printer where, you know, the printer or different components weren't included in the DHA. So some things were excluded. And we have the just, you know, regurgitating of the standard either just saying that prescriptive is the only option or even not recognizing that, you know, in a given industry, maybe NFPA doesn't have the prescriptive requirements to cover that industry. So you're sort of missing some things there. Are there any commonalities between these three in terms of qualified person? And so I'm trying to think of, okay, well, if I, if I said we needed to have this, this, and this in a qualified person to avoid these three situations, what kind of things, you know, would that person need to have? Well, I'm going back to the, the qualified person part on all three of those. It, it really goes to, in this case, they were either an engineer or a safety and health professional. And that's um, pretty much where most of the people lie. And the people who do DHAs, at least in the external entity part of it. But um, in all three of those cases, the, the background was never reviewed. In fact, it was never even included in the report, which kind of shocked me that, you know, they don't, have something in there to say, they say, yeah, here's who did it. You know, he's a PE, but they don't say anything in the report about, okay, here's his background or his or her background, I apologize. Or, you know, here's what they can do. Here's what they have done. There was no description like that. So I have to question all three qualifications of the people. But um, the, the, the other thing that ties all three of those in is that they were all kind of quote unquote, low cost, quote unquote, low time DHAs is what I call them. So basically, and those two play together because typically the lower the cost of the DHA, the faster the report comes out. And that may sound great. Believe me, I, I'm all for getting reports away from me. As Chris knows, I've worked on some for months that I, I really want away from me fast. But the problem with that is that if that comes out that fast, you can kind of, kind of guarantee that you're going to have some regurgitation of standards. You're going to have missed hazards. You're going to have all these things. And a lot of that plays back to qualifications because again, they just want to turn and burn. And that's kind of where all three of these kind of went in that, you know, let's get, let's get them out fast. Let's, let's just, you know, list, list some things and let's move on instead of taking the time you need to examine every potential hazard. And more importantly, the controls that are in place and the mitigation strategies to fix any kind of potential hazard. Yeah. And we, we at one point had written, 
I think it's a it's probably a book. It's probably seventy or eighty pages on on dust hazard analysis and qualified person. We never our designer ended up uh, going on to do some some other things. We never got the book design, but we had a bunch of ideas out of that. And, and one was just trying to classify. I just wrote out the notes here, the different types of knowledge that a person would need to be a qualified person. This was sort of taken out of the NFPA requirements. So the NFPA requirement is a person by who a possession of recognized degree, certificate, professional standing, or skill and who by knowledge, training, and experience has demonstrated the ability to deal with problems related to the subject matter, the work, or the project, um, which is, as Jason mentioned, pretty vague. I broke it down to three different kind of pieces that I've, I've presented on elsewhere, and it's they need to have a, a general knowledge, so they should understand combustible dust. They should understand the requirements of a DHA. They should understand NFPA 652. They should have specific knowledge. So the industry that they're doing the DHA in, they should know that industry. So if it's wood, then they need to have a background in the types of equipment and materials that are used in wood processing. If it's metal, then you have specific background. So if you're just a generalist, if you've done, if you've signed up for the Dust Safety Academy and, and taken the training in there, you have the background knowledge, but you also need the, the specific knowledge of that industry that you're working with. And then three, and and this is included in the NFPA definition, but you have to have experience. So I really don't think that anyone doing their first DHA should be doing it internal or external to the company without some supervision for somebody who's already a qualified person. So there's really three components, general knowledge, specific knowledge, and experience. And if you tie those three together, then you can get to a, a good definition of a qualified person. If you're missing one of the three elements, so if you you took some combustible dust courses and you know combustible dust, if you worked in a wood handling industry for 20 years, I'd say you probably have enough specific knowledge for that industry. But if you haven't done a DHA yet, then it's probably worth doing one and getting someone to audit or review it or getting someone to walk through the first couple with you or if you bring brought on to a consulting company having a you know the the lead consultant walk through the first couple with you and when we've seen issues in the past they've sort of felt into one of these three categories they could have been in in the industry for 20 years but not know anything about combustible dust they could know a lot about combustible dust and nothing about the industry or they could know both and just not had much experience actually walking through sites looking for DHAs. So an example of that might be someone who has been in an industry for a long time at a facility that was a specific facility. They have combustible dust knowledge, but they've never worked outside of that facility. We probably don't want them going around doing DHAs at a whole bunch of different facilities until they get that experience. I don't know, Jason, if do you, that categorization I'm sort of springing on you, general knowledge, specific knowledge, and an experience, but do those three things sort of fit into some of the challenges that you see with people being developed and being qualified to do this? Yeah. And I, and I think some of this, I mean, we have to take our, our own responsibility here. And what I mean by that is that I see sometimes where even friends of mine say, well, I can do this. And I know for a fact they can't, and they need to admit to themselves that they can't, um, you need to know your own limitations. So like, like you said, Chris, I mean, I consider myself more of a generalist on dust. So I, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of industries, but, um, Generally, what more people do, what you just said, you know, they, they focus on one type of dust, like wood or food or something like that. And what gets them in trouble, they're like, well, you know, I, I do food. I can do metals. Uh, no, metals are a whole different ballgame compared to wood or food or another type of dust. Same, same with coal. I mean, coal, depending on the type of coal, is different. So you, you've got to know your own limitations. And I think what gets some people in trouble is they assume well, you know, I know this, I, of course I know that. And, you know, it just, I just see it and I shake my head sometimes that, you know, like I said, some of these people are friends and I know they know better, but they just won't admit. They don't want to make that admission, but you've got to know your own limitations. Like I know, I know some stuff on environmental regulations and some stuff, but I also know where I need to stop and I won't go beyond that point in terms of where I'll get somebody who knows more than me, who I know can help the client with disposal of certain things for the Clean Air or Clean Water Act. So it's something similar to that. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to write that one down. I added a word to my third point, experience, documented experience. It just it fixes everything. So even if you are even if you think you know, go get some ex documented experience where you can say, yes, I worked on this project in this industry. I uh, was the support on a DHA or support on DHAs or like documented experience sort of fixes that because then you either have it or you don't. And until you get it, then you're not a, well, 
by this made up definition that that only Chris Cloney made up on this podcast, a qualified person. So I will I will add that in there that I'm not the not the AHA. I'm not the person that's uh, saying what this definition should be. But having document experience would be a really nice way to show that you you have done these DHAs in the past. I want to move into some of the solutions, and I've actually been keeping a running tally of ones that you've mentioned already. But let's cover some of the you know ones that you came into this discussion with already. What are some of the solutions to challenge or to addressing these challenges with qualified persons and and dust hazard analysis? Well, I, I think I mean obviously it's the the facilities here, or the companies that make the decision. They need a DHA for whatever reason. Sometimes it's just for, for compliance. Sometimes it's just because uh, they want to. They truly care about their employees and they want to find out potential hazards. Whatever the logic was behind why they wanted a DHA, once you reach that point, and generally you're going to go outside to get a DHA, uh, the company has to be very careful at that point because, again, I always tell people, and this is kind of a running joke of me, is that a lot of people that 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 I talk to, I don't think they could spell DHA because they don't know what it is. It's still so relatively new. They know they need it. They just don't know what it is. And so you've got to get comfortable with that person, whoever that is. But at the same time, you've got to make sure that that person's qualified to do it. And don't, again, don't fall into that assumption that, you know, they're qualified. And because what happens is everybody reverts back to price at that point. And there are the, that old adage of it. See if it's, you know, it's too good to be true. Yeah. You'll, you'll see that. Cause I, I mean, I, I can give you a prime example here. There was a DHA I saw that I got involved with afterwards after the ritual DHA was done. That was for like $6,000, $7,000. One day on site, uh, the report was like 20 pages. And this, this facility was half a million square feet. One day on site, one person. That's a lot of walking. Unless everything's the same in terms of all the dust collectors are the same make and model. They're set up exactly the same. Same thing with all the other stuff that was there, like the bucket elevators and everything else. I don't know how you do that and do a quality job in, in one day. I mean, if, if we were going to do that in one day, we'd have to send four or five people to do and split up. But anyway, but, you know, I saw that. And, and so I'm looking at the report and again, it just, you can, there's telltale signs, regurgitation of standards. Like one of my favorite ones is, well, implement a housekeeping program for NFPA 654. I don't know what that really tells someone. <laughs> um, I don't, that doesn't tell them anything. It just tells them to go back to the standard. But you'll see that. You'll see a lot of repetition on the thing, which almost makes it unreadable. There'll be no risk ranking. You'll see all these things. But by the time I added it all up, that $6,000 DHA really cost them over $100,000 in terms of unnecessary controls that would have been implemented things that were missed, potential OSHA citations that could have been issued. Like a good prime example was um, that DHA actually said to put deflagration vents on the walls of the building. They didn't need that. That would have cost all this money. And the building code official was actually involved at that point. I was able to convince them they didn't need it. It was was pointless at that point. But this kind of goes back to, I guess, that person, whoever it was, told the facility well, yeah, the deflagration vents are protecting employees. No, those deflagration vents on the walls will do nothing to protect the employees. If they're in there when deflagration goes off, they're dead. Um, it's basically to keep the building up so they can evacuate, but it's not there to protect them. But I think, you know, falling back on price is where this gets to be a big issue. Um, you've got to do your due diligence and looking up, like like you talked about, Chris, looking up their expertise and doing their references. And one of the most important things I think you can do is get a sample report before you actually do the DHA. So you see how detailed they really are or how detailed they're going to be in terms of the uh, DHA. So you mentioned some of the points in this kind of list that I've developed through this podcast, focusing on price, first of all. And you, you had a really political term for it. I think it was low cost and, and fast or low cost and, and quick time or something. So fast and cheap is the, the short way to say that. And I'll come <laughs> back to that one. So background information is one I one I would like to say include. So certainly be looking at, you know, P 
people, including CVs and descriptions of, of their work and experience. And in there, I would encourage you to look at these three elements that I, I made up for a qualified person in this podcast, but I think they're, they're relevant. General knowledge, do you have a combustible dust background? Industry-specific knowledge, have you worked in or around or with these industries before? And have you, do you have documented experience in doing DHAs? I think in terms of your, your package that you're developing and delivering as your background, those would be some of the elements that as a, a client, as a consumer, that uh, you should be looking at. Ask for examples. This is a really good one. Ask for a sample report. If they don't give it to you or they don't have it available or due to confidentiality, look at some other companies and see, well, if this company A gives you a sample report and looks really good and company B won't give you a sample report, then you can you know, start to, ju- start to judge where that low cost might come in. So I like sample reports because one, if you get the report, that's good. You know what you're getting. But two, if you don't get the report, it's sort of a filter to start to ask some more questions. References is another one. Certainly same sort of thing. If they're not willing to provide references of previous clients that they've worked with, that's an area where you know some red flags might be going off and you may be able to look and compare that to the price of other folks that are willing to provide more detailed references. You, you should ask what the report's going to include up front. Um, is it going to include the risk ranking? Is it going to include guidance and support on how to actually implement solutions? Do they think they're going to be doing performance-based design? And if they do think they're going to be doing performance-based design, well, those references you might want to ask for is an AHJ that they've dealt with before on the performance-based design that could speak to how that process went and, and if the AHJ believes that they're qualified to be doing this work as well. So we have a couple things here. Figure out what's going to be in the report, find their background, don't focus on price, um, look for samples and references. And one that's new to me that I've never thought to add to the list, but uh, Jason came up with it, is ask them what they think their limits are. And if they can come up with a succinct, well, these are the areas that I don't work in, or these are the areas that these are the things that I don't do, you know you're probably dealing with a pretty solid provider that's done some self-reflection on you know, what their strengths and, and what their limitations are. If they just say, well, we do it all, then you know, that's another Another thing you can look back at and go, oh, well, well, maybe these aren't the right people for us. Anything else to add to that list of possible solutions? I know that was a bit of a longer diatribe, but I, I just had this running list the entire episode that I want to get out. Uh, no, I, I think I think that list definitely works. You know, one that may seem kind of weird to ask, but um, I, you know, I'm probably not phrasing it the correct way, but I'll kind of explain it, is uh, who, who do they work for? And while, while that may not seem that may seem obvious. You're talking to somebody, well, of course they work for them. Not necessarily. There are people that actually use contractors. They use independent contractors in 1099s. And I'm not saying that doesn't work. It could work. But the problem with that is that when that model is implemented, sometimes the standardization part goes out the window because each independent contractor does their own thing. So you could and I've had this happen and people couldn't believe it where they went to the company that does DHA. They have four facilities. They send four different consultants out who are all independent contractors, but they didn't know that because they, they make them look like they're employees and they get four different reports. There's no standardization to any, to any of the reports. And now they're freaking out because they're like, well, we don't know. Well, this one's more detailed than that one. This one's risk ranked. That one's not. And they're all over the board. And so there's no standardization there. So um, kind of asking them to make sure that if they are independent contractors, it's a standardization there. Yeah, it's a really good one. And probably just disclose other relationships if they have distributor relationships with equipment providers. That's not a, that's not a problem in its own right, but it's something worth knowing as a company when they're, they're making recommendations, what kind of um, you know interest they might have in those recommendations as well. Yeah, and and you could even just call it a conflict of interest, trying to, to get a, any kind of conflicts of interest out there. Because there was one recently where an engineer who designed a bunch of this equipment and a bunch of the facilities said they could do the DHA and they decided to go with them. And my comment was, look, I, I'm not, I don't want to be mean, but how do you know they're not biased? I was like, because you haven't really evaluated that. And, you know, it's always good to have that independent person there who is truly independent, who has your best interests at heart. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And like I like I said, I wouldn't outright say that that person can't do it, but you do got to be aware of same as you and this is a whole different podcast episode, but same as if you wanted to do it internal, you need to be aware of the biases that you're going to have because you're inside the company, the pressures you're going to have that an external person is not going to have and how that might influence the results of a DHA. 
Uh, not saying it can't be done, but you just need to be aware of those those difficulties that might arise. So we we covered you know the the challenges with the qualified person. We covered examples of how you've seen this sort of manifest itself, um, how that ties into the qualifications. We covered some of the solutions for end users, things they should be looking for when finding a, a qualified provider for DHAs. Any sort of last comment you want to leave the the listeners off for this podcast episode, Jason? I think my kind of last comment here, and I, I've said this quote. Um, now for a while, but you know, all DHAs are not created equal. There are a few prescriptive requirements if you look at the NFPA standards for DHAs, but honestly, they're all performance based. And and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I you know it keeps it open, and I and I get that. But because of that, if you're going to do a DHA, you've got to do your research primarily on that qualified person because it's all going to come back to him or her or the team or whoever it is of how good that DHA is going to be. It is all on that person, whoever it is. So anything that's missed, anything that's unnecessary, anything like that, it all traces back to that person who did the DHA. And again, you you just got to be careful because when a DHA is done right, it's an awesome thing. I mean, it can actually save you money, believe it or not. I mean, you know, there's a return of investments as high as 200% and some DHAs that, that I've seen out there. But again, to do that, you have to take the time to research those mitigation strategies, research those hazards. And these, the low cost um, and the the fast DHAs, like I said, they may seem great at the time, but in the long run, it's actually not going to be great for you. So unless you just want to check a box to say you've done it. And then, and in that case, just checking the box, most of the time, the controls won't be implemented anyway it's going to end up in the black hole in most cases. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the final barometer. Yeah. You got your DHA done and you're not actually implementing recommendations. Then, you know, then it was just the, the ultimate check of the box to get something done, but hasn't really, you're, you're never going to get a return on investment on a DHA that you don't implement anything from or can't implement anything from. Yeah. I, I think just to finish up my thoughts here, I think my hope is one day we'll have some entity. I don't know who it'll be that would somehow try to standardize qualifications for doing DHA. So a good example would be, you know, some of my certifications, for example, if you want to qualify an industrial hygienist, you look to see if they're a CIH. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, some of the dumbest people I know are CIHs, but that, so it doesn't prove anything like in terms of knowledge or anything, but it does prove, okay, you have five years of experience. You've done this you can pass a really hard test that kind of gauges your knowledge, but it's at least some kind of barometer there where you can compare apples to apples somewhat. And my hope is someday we may have that for DHAs. Uh, that's my hope anyway. Well, I would say, and, and I mean, I've heard complaints about certifications that, you know, you can be certified and not qualified, but at least it's binary. <laughs> like yeah. At least, at least you know it's it, the you got the surgery, you don't got the cert. Instead of both being, if, if it's if it's fuzzy and not well defined, that's that's worse than being not well defined and 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 not fuzzy. <laughs> so we either got the certification or you don't got the certification, and then we can work on how good the certification is. And there's a good example of this, Chris. I deal with this all the time with PEs, professional engineer you know, they're licensed. That, that means a lot to them. Just like my certification mean a lot to me, but I always ask them, I was like, so you're so sure about this solution, right? They go, yeah. I go, put your PE on the line, stamp it. Well, no, I don't want to do that. I was like, you're not so sure, are you? And so it, 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 it gives some accountability to that person because if something happens, well, now that certification or that license is on the line. And typically they're only going to recommend things that are they're comfortable with or you know, they at least take a second look at it because I have some PEs that they won't stamp anything unless they are, they are entirely sure it's correct. No, that's a, I think that's a good place to leave this, this episode off on. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can work towards a, a certified qualified person in the future. Maybe that's something that uh, Dust Safety Academy needs to look at. I'm not hundred uh, percent sure how that's going to work or if it can work, but we will, we'll work towards trying to figure out some solutions to these challenges moving forward as a community. And if that's a role that, that, you know, we could play a part of, then, then we're happy to do it. Jason, I want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast. I appreciate as always you sharing your, your expertise and your knowledge with 
the global dust safety community we have here across the podcast, across the Dust Safety Academy platform. I always learn a lot talking with you and I want to say thank you again. And until next time, do we get you back on the podcast in the future? All right. Sounds good. All right, Jason. We'll be talking soon. Thanks. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Jason Reason, lead combustible dust consultant at Air Dusco based at Indianapolis, Indiana. We'll be talking about how unqualified individuals are affecting DHAs. So Jason gave a bit, bit of his background. And as I've, I've probably said every time we've had him on the episode, one of the things I really in, enjoy about talking with him in combustible dust is the, the breadth of, of knowledge that he brings as a consultant, as an expert, but also as a regulator, as a trainer, having these different facets makes you know, just a wealth of knowledge that we can share on the podcast and, and get out to the community. We talked through really a couple of different components. We talked about qualified persons. We talked about examples. We talked about solutions for end users to determine if they have a qualified person. So some of the challenges that uh, that Jason brought up were around making sure you have the prerequisite knowledge to actually make the recommendations that you you, you need to be making as a, a DHA provider. Not just following, not necessarily just following prescriptive-based design. There's other design methods out there. Taking a, a real risk-based approach and and at looking at the hazards that are involved, not just you know checking the the box that we have X, Y, and Z, and then you know really missing potentially severe hazards. And Jason mentioned this in some examples. He talked about a metal surface removal booth where you put venting on the booth, but you know ignore the the deflagration flash fire hazard on the individual that's inside the booth or even the explosion hazard, I guess, if, if they're inside the booth. Talk about 3D printing and not including that in, in your DHA. Probably having a list of pieces of equipment that are ex- have been excluded in your DHA actually put in the report. Probably a helpful thing to, to have as, a, as an end user that's getting this sort of information. And we talked through then as an as a end user, what are some solutions to find a qualified person? So I came up with this three-step framework needing general knowledge, needing specific knowledge, and having documented experience for dust hazard analysis. It's probably three broad categories where you put people's experiences um, and their knowledge for combustible dust to determine whether or not they, they meet their criteria to be able to do a DHA in your industry. Getting this background information up front and not just assuming that they have these qualifications or well, there are no qualifications, but just assuming that they're a qualified person um, is probably the first step to really protecting yourself and getting a good DHA done. We talked about not focusing just on price and not just on time, but looking at a, a broader view of of what they can provide. Talking about what's actually going to go in the report. Are we going to look at performance or prescriptive uh, approaches? Is there going to be risk ranking? Is there going to be support in, in how to actually implement the things that are flagged and the, the gaps that are found? Asking for a sample report, asking for references, and and asking what their limits are. What industries don't they work in? If they can answer those, if they can give good sample reports, if they can give good references of, of AHJs or companies that they've worked with, then you you know you're working with somebody that's really has a lot of experience in the space. And that'll give you a lot broader scope to be able to then compare them to other options than just looking at the the price and how fast the turnaround can be on the the DHA itself. So that's it for this episode. I've lost count of I think that's number five for Jason for the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We appreciate him coming on, and I appreciate everything that you're doing industries handling combustible dust, making them safer around the world every day. We have a great week ahead and I'm looking forward to bringing you another insightful and informative podcast on combustible dust coming up next week. 